electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. A doubleheader in Washington, as you just saw. We've got both banks and AI under congressional scrutiny. You just heard from OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, of course. We'll get to him in a moment. But first on the banks, would better regulation or better management have prevented the bank failures? Our expert says almost no one could have survived what happened to SVB. We will debate that. Plus, there's the role of regulation in AI. We'll look at what policymakers are considering and what the CEO of Builder.ai says can't happen to that space. Plus, our market guest says there's one group of stocks in particular that's poised to benefit from the AI gold rush. She will join us with those names and a lot of bearish analyst calls on SoFi in the last few days. Our guest says the bears are wrong and the stock is a buy. What he's seeing that others maybe aren't. He's here to make his case. First, though, to the markets and Dom Chu has the numbers. It's consolidation and it's been like this for probably a couple weeks now. The markets are not doing much of anything in terms of drastic movement, but they're hovering right around the levels that you see here, still around between 4,100 and 4,140 in that range there. And it's been like that for about maybe five or 10 trading days now, kind of going into this area where there's just a little bit of movement overall. But the Dow Industrial is down about one half of 1%, 196 points, 33,152. The S&P, like I pointed out, 41.27 the last trade. They're off about one quarter of 1%. At the highs of the session, we were down one point. At the lows, down 22. So again, generally a negative day, but tilting up towards the upper end of that trading range, if you will. And the NASDAQ Composite outperforming right now up one third of 1%, 36 points to the upside, 12,401. One place to keep a close eye on is what's happening with retail today because we've got economic data in the form of retail sales, also an earnings report that's seen as a bellwether for many parts of the U.S. economy. Home Depot shares down about one and a third percent. That's off the session low so far. Now, Home Depot comes out with earnings that beat expectations. Revenues fall shy. It was the worst miss on a relative basis in roughly 20 years in terms of Home Depot. They also cut their full-year revenue guidance. They cited, amongst other things, slower spending on big-ticket items like outdoor patio sets and outdoor grills, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, Lowe's is down in sympathy about 1%. Etsy's the biggest decliner in the S&P 500, driven in part by a price target cut by analysts over at Morgan Stanley, citing future growth concerns. And then some of the ETFs more broadly based are mixed in the session. So retail still a big theme. Big week for those earnings coming up. And then the stocks to watch right now, a big plunge in shares of Horizon Therapeutics. That biotech is now down about 15% off the worst levels of the session. You may recall it was being, it has agreed to be bought by biotech giant Amgen, a nearly $28 billion deal. Well, now the Federal Trade Commission has formally come out to sue to block this transaction, citing competitive concerns. As a result, those Horizon shares, Kelly, down 15%. Amgen's off about 1% in that trade overall. Big deal in biotech that could be 
facing some severe hurdles. We'll see how that plays out. I'll send things back over to you. We will have more on that next hour, Dom. Thank you. Our top story for the moment, dual hearings on Capitol Hill, each with major ramifications for business. In the first hearing, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, testifying on the dangers of artificial intelligence before the Senate Judiciary Committee. In the second one, the Senate Banking Committee grilling the former CEOs of SVB and Signature Banks on the collapse of their companies. Let's begin with banking. Joining me now, Aaron Klein, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. John Maxfield is president of the Substack Maxfield on Banks. CNBC's Leslie Picker is here as well. Welcome to everybody. And Leslie, what are the headlines so far? So there were supposed to be five events in 72 hours, really drilling down into the cause of these uh, bank collapses. One of those got postponed. Uh, but the headline here is really trying to figure out who to blame. And, you know, if you kind of take a step back and look at the conversation that ensued for the last uh, two and a half hours or so, that's how long the hearings lasted. They just ended. Um, basically, the executives were like, these were black swan events. No one could have seen this coming. If we had to do it over again, we wouldn't, given all the information we had at the time, we wouldn't have changed a thing. And then, of course, you have the lawmakers on the other side of the, the uh, table who said, you know, where were your interest rate hedges? Um, what about this incentive compensation you have that drove you to take riskier measures and pursue growth at all costs? And uh, basically, they just said, you know, this we are not to blame here. They blamed the Fed. Uh, they blamed their board. They blamed employees. This is all according to Senator Sherrod Brown, who kind of summed it up at the end. Um, they blamed social media. So it, it, I don't SVB know. SVB blamed Goldman Sachs and, the, you know, the yep. Financial Times as well. I mean, they in SVB did seem to imply, you know, Goldman gave them bad advice on how they should have sold that portfolio that triggered kind of the cascade that led to its collapse. Yeah. So there were many, many variables at play. And I don't know as the result at the end of the week, will we be able to take a step back and say this was, you know, who we should put the blame on? Right. Um, you know, but it is interesting to kind of drill down and, and get their perspective. Erin, I'll turn to you. Uh, what would your response be to kind of the explanations that we are being given about these bank failures? Yeah, look, the blame lies on bank management. It's not a black swan event to know that interest rates were going to rise. Yeah, they rose more quickly than you thought, but you took out for your hedge in 2019 to maximize profits and boost short-term uh, stock price. So the number one blame is clearly on the bank executives. Uh, they didn't take it. I was struck by how bipartisan the grilling of the SVB CEO was and his uh, absolute zero interest in returning any of his bonuses uh, that he's gotten over the years. Uh, but I think the regulators also have a fair amount to blame here, particularly the Federal Reserve, who regulated SVB from head to toe and was asleep at the switch, as several Republican senators pointed out. Yeah. So, John, I'll turn to you and kind of ask the same question. Because how unique do you think SVB's problems were? And this hearing is also taking place as we're not sure if there's going to still be more shoes to drop in the banking industry. Yeah, so what I'd say, Kelly, first of all, it's great to be on your show, as always. Um, I'd say that if you'd say if, if to say that there's to blame the, the, the executives of these banks is to say that, like, if you were in that situation, you would not have made the same mistake. Um, I think that that is like a misunderstanding of kind of what happened at, at these two different banks. And I'm not necessarily an apologist for these banks at all, but I think you just have to be realistic that like, if you go into 2020 with $60 billion in deposits on your books and you get two years later, you have $190 billion in deposits on your books that were caused by fiscal and monetary stimulus. 
Like what you would do in that situation is it's, it, you just simply don't know what you do in that situation. And so like, um, do you put it in the safest thing? Do you, do you reject the deposits? Do you keep it off balance sheet? I mean, it's just so unusual what happened in this situation. In fact, like, you know, I've kind of gone back all through history in banking and kind of identified the one other time where you had a situation like this and, and what happened in that situation. And then you have to go all the way back to the 1830s. And in 1834, Andrew Jackson, basically, he was trying to get rid of the second bank in the United States. And he basically said, we're going to take the deposits out of that bank, and we're going to distribute those, those deposits to state banks. They called them pet banks. And so they, they put all of these deposits into these banks. And what happened to those banks? Well, if you look at the three banks in New York City that got the deposits, it was Bank of America, Mechanics Bank, and um, uh, what was the third one? Um, uh, and Manhattan Bank. Two out of those three basically came with a hair's breadth of failure. So they didn't totally fail, but it was the same exact situation. And so you just have a situation where it's like, you have all that money dumped on these banks. They have to do something with it. What are they going to do with it? Like, it's just a very difficult, you know, I, yeah. I think it's, I think we have to be more realistic about assessing blame in situations like this. I, I see Aaron uh, re reacting. I, th I think you're, you're saying you would have done something different, Aaron Klein. What yeah, is that? I mean, I mean, you don't have to go back to 1830 to see explosive growth, Huge leverage at the home loan banks, which was something that Countrywide and IndyMac and other folks did. Uh, the idea that these bank CEOs were just passive people with deposits being dumped on them uh, kind of belies basic logic. Look, it was a fast growth strategy where he didn't consider banking 101, which was interest rate risk. Uh, he bought a bunch of safe securities on a credit risk side uh, in terms of the 3 and 4% mortgages that people used to be getting, but they had interest rate risk. And everybody knew there was risk. That's why they had hedges, but they took the hedges off because it boosted short-term profits. They didn't have a chief risk officer for nine months. Look, America has 9,000 banks and credit unions. Low interest rates are a common denominator across the entire industry. These banks didn't know what they were doing. They screwed up. They failed. And the regulators were often asleep at the switch in the in that process. Let me but it's not some implausible concept that you have to go back to 1830 to find a scenario where interest rates rose sharply and banks didn't hedge their risk. No, but I think the point is, you know, when's the last time you've seen a bank go, you know, grow its deposit base by 3.5x in 18 months time? John, let me have you respond to that before Leslie, I give you a quick last word. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I appreciate his point, but you do actually have to go back to 1830 to find a, a comparable precedent in this situation. And I mean, just the fact of the matter is, is that if, if look, if these banks were going out and growing intentionally, just to going gangbusters growing, what would you see? you'd see massive new customer acquisition. Did we see that here? We didn't see that here. We saw existing customers, a ton of liquidity flooding into their accounts. That liquidity had to go somewhere. And so like, yeah, any bank, and you know, I've talked about this, Kelly, like the, the rule in banking is failure. That's the general rule. The exception is survival. So any bank that fails, in a sense, it is the fault of the management. But the situation here was so unusual that I'm not sure that anybody in that situation could have avoided failure, given the incentives and, and, and how all that stuff works. And Leslie, I'll give you a quick last word. One of the points that Becker made in his testimony is that he had five times the exposure to SVB shares than he was really required to, which obviously were zeroed out as, as the collapse, because he's been under a lot of uh, criticism and Warren's working on a bill now to claw back uh, comp from failed banks. And his point is, you know, that he had larger exposure to its success than he even had to, or in this case, to its failure. Yeah, and I think the lawmakers pointed to that as almost a negative, that that was driving the decision-making to grow the bank to 
um, too quickly and take more risk as a result of that. And so, but if you uh, had taken a bigger salary, then you're. I mean, then exactly. they would have said, well, then you got paid and you didn't have any risk, you know, in 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 conjunction with the shareholders. So, is there any? What what do they want to happen here then? <laughs> well, that's going to be the interesting thing that comes out of the potential legislation that results from this, and that. As we look ahead, Thursday's hearing will be much more about the regulatory side of things. Jamie Dimon actually uh, spoke at the J.P. Morgan shareholder meeting. It was virtually webcast, but he talked about kind of regulation, something that he's been talking about a lot as we look to ring fence these issues, prevent potential uh, failures of these large institutions in the future. And he said that simply satisfying regulatory requirements is not sufficient, reserve abundance, and managing those risks requires constant and vigilant scrutiny as the world revolves regarding the current disruption in the U.S. banking system. Right. And that most of these risks will hide in plain sight. And, Aaron, the regulators completely failed uh, in this case. So what, what do you think the response needs to be real quick? Well, look, I think the response is going to be greater uh, debt holding company capital for banks uh, over $100 billion so that they could be wound down in a better way. And then ultimately, there's going to be a question of whether or not regulators will finally let banks fail without bailouts. Uh, This generation of regulators seems every time their major problems to hit the bailout button. And that's something that, you know, is a judgment call. uh, But we see repeatedly, and that really does change market expectations in the future. Depositor bailout, uh, at least so far. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there for now. We appreciate it. To be continued, Aaron Klein, John Maxfield, and our Leslie Pick. I shouldn't say gentlemen, uh, and our <laughs> Leslie Picker as well. We'll get to the AI hearing in just a moment. But first, elsewhere in D.C., the debt ceiling drama also continues. Congressional leaders returning to the White House today to meet with President Biden. And while Wall Street's still bullish about a deal, their optimism is fading somewhat. B of A's latest fund manager survey shows the majority of investors still think the debt limit will be raised by the X date. But that figure dropped from 80 percent last month to just 71 percent in the latest results. Are they right to be concerned? Let's get to Eamon Javers with the latest. Eamon? Concerned, at least in the short term. Uh, We're waiting for this meeting at the White House of the big four Democratic and Republican congressional leaders. That's coming up at 3 p.m. Remember, there is a live shot position right outside the West Wing. So if any of these leaders want to say anything to the press about what happens in this meeting, they're going to have the opportunity right after the meeting breaks up. So we'll watch for that. Meanwhile, a Democratic source familiar with the process tells NBC News Democrats will decide right after that meeting whether or not to move forward with a plan B option of sorts on the debt ceiling. That would be a legislative process to force a vote on the floor, but it would require at least some Republicans to go along. So it's not seen by Democrats as the best option just yet. They'll decide that after the meeting breaks up. Meanwhile, Speaker McCarthy, for his part, he's been sounding a pessimistic note over the past 24 hours, telling reporters that the talks are not going well at all and saying there's no progress that I see. So we'll see if any of that changes after 3 p.m., Kelly. Uh, While we have you, you've been following the Jeffrey Epstein uh, Virgin Islands uh, issue closely. Now a subpoena to Elon Musk. What do we know? Well, what we know as of right now, Kelly, is we learned Monday that U.S. Virgin Islands have issued a subpoena to Elon Musk for information related to sexual predator Jeffrey Epstein and J.P. Morgan. A key allegation in that case from the U.S. Virgin Islands has been that the bank kept up a relationship with Epstein because he was referring powerful and wealthy men to the bank as clients. Now, the U.S. Virgin Islands say they believe that Musk may have been one of those men, but they say their private investigator has been unable to track Musk down 
down and physically serve him with a subpoena. So they want the court to authorize alternative service methods. Musk responded in a tweet to all this, calling the subpoena idiotic and saying that Cretan never advised me on anything whatsoever. Musk also says he has never forgiven J.P. Morgan for what he says was letting Tesla down 10 years ago. So what Musk, Musk's tweet didn't say, though, Kelly, is whether or not he knew Epstein or whether Epstein ever tried, at least, to sell him on the idea of moving some funds to J.P. Morgan. So there's still a lot to learn in all of this. Kelly, back all over right. you. Eamon, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Eamon Javers. Quick programming note. Don't miss David Faber's live interview with Elon Musk after Tesla's annual meeting. It is live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. Coming up, the other high-stakes hearing happening on Capitol Hill today as the race to regulate AI heats up. Plus, the opportunities in oversight. We'll look at the semi-stocks that could benefit the most from regulation and remain insulated from a potential recession. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at the markets. Dow still down almost 200 points. The S&P underwater as well, while the Nasdaq holds a small gain. As you can see there, it's still up about a quarter of 1% today. The small cap's down 1% and that 10-year yield back at 355. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman taking questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee on the potential dangers of AI today. After the launch of his popular chatbot, ChatGPT kicked off an arms race between big tech companies. Let's discuss now bringing in Steve Kovac, who's live on Capitol Hill with the latest for us. Julia Borston right here in studio. Welcome uh, with more on what's at stake. Also joining us is Builder.ai CEO Sachin Dev Dugal. Uh, it's great to see you. Sachin, I was, you kind of have the sweater. It's not do you know how many questions I got about the sweater last time? I've, you know, I've, and it was so funny. I've left the sweater back in London. <laughs> listen, that shirt goes a long way. Let me just start with you real quickly. I mean, what, what did you not want to hear today? You know, I think um, what we didn't want to hear was um, not thoughtful conclusions. You know, that you've just reached a, a blanket you know, a blanket decision that all AI is bad. I think what we didn't want to hear is we don't want to regulate. Um, uh, and I think the other piece that we probably didn't want to hear is we're going to figure this out as policymakers and not really bring in experts and sort of civil society back into it. Hmm. Well, then, Steve, they probably addressed all three of those by what sounds like a pretty collaborative hearing today, would you say? 
Yeah, that's exactly the message that came out of here, Kelly, was that it was more like an educational session for the senators to learn about how this technology works from basically the guy who is the figurehead of it, Sam Altman, the OpenAI CEO, and learning what they could do as they think about crafting regulation around this. There was even an admission, Kelly, from a couple of the senators on the panel saying, we got it wrong with social media and Web 2.0. We didn't move fast enough and look what happened. They don't want that to happen again. And so what they're doing here is trying to get ahead of it and talk to people like Sam Altman to figure out how to craft re legislation around this technology, which frankly is they don't know how it's going to develop. So right. what can we do today to make sure we have a grasp on it later? Julia, I'm a little surprised to hear that. I mean, what do they think sh they should have done about social media? Well, social media, what was so amazing in that situation is there was bipartisan support for reform of Section 230, which is the regulation which makes these social platforms immune from being responsible for the content that's shared on their platforms. Reforming Section 230 would make the likes of Facebook or WhatsApp or, or Twitter liable if content is shared that is manipulative or dangerous. Now they're not responsible if that content but is shared in those platforms. My understanding was there was never enough support to actually, that's a big step to take. And I think people realize, well, if we do this, we're we could shut down, you know, the viability well, of a lot of these platforms. There was always um, sort of commentary from the social platforms and even from the likes of YouTube that there should be reform, but it needs to be careful reform, that they do need those protections. But I think talking about Section 230 today and the fact that there was not reform, the fact that these there has not been a comprehensive privacy legislation here in the U.S., and that legislation has come out of Europe, and you've had the EU effectively regulate um, the way all of these companies deal with privacy. Privacy. They say this time around, we want the U.S. to be on the forefront of regulation. When it comes to AI, it can't be the same thing as happened with privacy. We need to have the U.S. leading the charge. And one thing that I heard over and over today was this focus on transparency. They talked about a nutrition label for understanding the different ingredients that are going into these a different AI um, algorithms and also what's coming out of them. And I think that was really first and foremost the main takeaway, transparency is key. It's interesting. So, Sachin, on that note, a, a nutrition label, something to that effect, how would that affect your company? How would that affect the adoption and, and sort of development taking place on top of these language models? You know, um, it really comes down to a risk profile. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, and I think, you know, we touched on this last time we had the chat, which is, is this touching civil liberties? Um, is it risk to core infrastructure? Or is it, on the other hand, increasing productivity? Uh, is it empowering people to be able to do something they weren't able to do before because they didn't have the technical or musical or artistic sort of background to be able to do whatever that activity is? I think if it's in the former two, um, then you know the label is important, but it it's not it's not critical. I think if it's in the first two. The warning or the label or what have you is quite important because it's subject to bias. Uh, it's it's subject to sort of elements of losing autonomy. You know, imagine facial detection right. that is rampant, or imagine the ability that you know you've got um, a system that has the risk to hallucinate, but then is able to make critical infrastructure decisions. So, so I really, it's it's very nuanced. It's got to be it's got to be on the use case itself. And Steve, I still think about what Lena Khan wrote. I think it was in the Times recently when she said, you know, all of the existing rules we have obviously apply to AI. And how many of those existing rules from copyright to whatever would cover the areas we are most concerned about here? 
Yeah, th that was actually discussed in, in the hearing, Kelly, where they're talking about things like copyright. Senator Marcia Blackburn, who's from Tennessee, she highlighted, you know, Nashville singers and musicians who are actually concerned that uh, this AI is going to kind of scrape that content and repackage or reuse it without compensating. So that was another issue that was brought there. But look, overall, I want to talk what, to Seichen's uh, point earlier. That is what the tech industry in large is asking for. They're asking for this kind of prescriptive regulation. AI can't be used for weaponry, for example. That's what the industry is kind of asking for on top of this kind of international agency. Now, I asked, I got to pull Sam Altman aside uh, when the hearing wrapped, and I said, you know, what happens if we're in the same position again? What happens if the people you just spoke to in that room are not able to craft legislation or regulation? He didn't really have an answer. He's just saying, I hope they can. Uh, so we know what happens in Web 2.0, in the social media world, when there is no regulation, there are no guardrails. At, le at the good side of this is, at least they're thinking about it ahead of time, whereas you could argue they weren't before. Yeah, it just, you know, it's, it's novel, Julian. I wonder if they just have to wait a little bit. I mean, the, the but biggest things thing- are moving so quickly, so they yeah. can't really wait. And I think- to But what are they point, trying to do? I still don't understand. What are they trying to do? Well, for instance, I would raise the point when it comes to the upcoming election and the fact that there is so much concern about manipulation. Think about Correct. the deep fakes that could really totally. lead people astray during manipulation or even the but fact- But what would the law be? What is the policy? So, so see, that deep fake law is not so much a law around the creation of deep fake content, right? Because if you've sort of seen the Top Gun movie, they recreated Val Kimmerer's voice. So that is the same kind of technology. It's more actually the distribution risk. Mm -hmm. So in some respects, the problems that we're now trying to solve with regulations, to your point earlier, are the problems we did not solve with social media around distribution and verification of content that's going through that. I mean, because anyone could make a deep fake now. One of, one of the bills that's being proposed is saying that any time you use AI in either the creation or deployment of a, of a political ad, you're going to need to disclose that to AI identify was that. part of and that. And we've already seen those ads, by the way, imagining a world with President Biden, you know, in charge in four years or whatever. But I think that this, this election, there's a lot of concern about how much more advanced all of these different AI tools will be by the next election and just the potential for for misleading the, the public. So disclosure, basically, is they would have to say this was created with AI. Would there be anything beyond that, though? About or, I mean, there was a conversation in the hearing today about what happens if someone goes on to ChatGPT and says, there's a long line at my polling place. Where do I go? What happens if ChatGPT doesn't give it an accurate response? Is that voter suppression? So it's a very complex thing. And then the real world implications, especially when it comes to politics and all the people in the hearing today, are, are very large. Right. I, uh, I guess a quick final, Steve, any comment you want to make about Microsoft before we go? Yeah, they, they actually didn't come up too much other than saying, uh, I think it was Cory Booker who brought this up, Senator Booker, saying something to the uh, effect of, look, we're, I'm, oh, it was Booker, actually. I'm really worried about this concentration of power. By the way, OpenAI, you are funded by Microsoft. What do you think of that? And also the idea that Web 2.0 is in the hands of some giants. Um, you know, Altman kind of answered that in a wishy-washy way. He does have a financial uh, tie to Microsoft, but look, he still believes believes OpenAI was founded with this kind of altruistic mission to make sure AI is done responsibly. So he's really leaning on that and also that his platform is not just Microsoft, anyone can kind of tap into their APIs and their programming in order to build chat, build off of ChatGPT. Yeah. So he thinks there's room for anyone to win. No, I think they're eventually going to become kind of like any other consumer tech company. But before we get to that point, Sachin, you're a Microsoft partner as well. What would, your, what would you say about that? Look, I think um, this notion of concentration of power 
is a little um, overused, if I'm honest, because we've had this since the cloud hyperscalers. We've had this in Web3. We've had this in social media. You know, before the cloud, we had this in news. The only difference was you didn't have concentration at a global level because most news did, was sort of more sovereign based or sort of based within the country. Um, I think this idea that now it's a sudden issue when actually it's running on or being distributed through social media, running on cloud, it, it's something that we should have got used to by, by now. I think the bigger concern around concentration is actually more of a bias issue is to make sure that as we use this technology more and more, we're able to augment the data um, with the relevant regions, whether it's cities, states, countries, um, and sort of diversity inclusion. And, and that's probably the, the big change between something that was inanimate, like the cloud or social media, to, to where we are now. And, and, and you know, this, this sort of this question around voter suppression and asking ChatGPT away for a cure. Keep in mind, its data is two years old. Right, exactly. So, so one of the things we, ha we have to sort of stay honest with ourselves is there's so much hyperbole and hype that it's scaring people and, and it's making the system feel like it's so much more evolved than it is. Yeah. We are still in the AOL days of broadband. Yeah, well, maybe if nothing else, it needs to say on the landing page, this is up to date as of 2021 or whatever the number is. So much needs to happen. But maybe to the point about Section 230, you got to be careful when you do it so you don't do it too soon and kind of not address the, the issues you need to. Um, guys, thank you all. Really appreciate it. We'll leave it there for now. Julia Borston, Sachin Dev Dugal of Builder.ai and our very own Steve Kovac. Still ahead, the eye in the sky. We'll follow up with one disruptor revolutionizing the weather forecasting industry. It's an out-of-this-world story changing the way corporate America does business around the globe. AIAIO. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Keeping our familiar pattern here of late with the NASDAQ in the green by 19 points while the S&P and Dow are red. S&P's down 13 points to 41.23. Dow's down about 200 to 33.116. Speaking of which, look at this number, 33.117 today. Well, anyway, up here now, down 231 points. We are watching the break-even level 33 Three, three, one, four, seven. This is the level at which we will go negative year to date. You can see we're below that right now by about 30 points. Um, by the way, the 50-day moving average right here, which we haven't closed below since March 30, we are also looking to potentially break below that. So even though it's been kind of quiet trading activity, still pretty consequential lately. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for our CNBC News update. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. Russia is responding to a video posted on the CIA's YouTube page aimed at recruiting Russian spies. The video offered Russians a secure way to communicate with the CIA and promised protection if they share secrets about the Ukraine war and other information. The Kremlin said its special services were monitoring it, and it's not surprised by Western intelligence activity in their country. 
European Union states approved the world's first comprehensive set of rules to regulate crypto assets today. The rules that will require firms that want to issue, trade and safeguard crypto assets in the block to obtain a license. Those rules are expected to roll out in 2024, putting the EU ahead of the U.S. in regulating crypto. And the Philadelphia 76ers have fired head coach Doc Rivers today after the team's disappointing loss to the Boston Celtics during the second round of the 2023 NBA playoffs on Sunday. Rivers has not gotten past the second round of the playoffs in three seasons with the 76ers, and he had a 3-2 lead in that series. Kelly, back to you. They're absolutely brutal. Uh, like every coach who's won a championship in the last 15 years has basically uh, subsequently been fired. Tyler, see you yep. soon. Coming up, the NASDAQ handily outperforming the major indices since Jan 1. We will talk about what that rebound in tech stocks is all about. Kim Forrest weighs in next. Welcome back. The Nasdaq avoiding losses so far today as tech leads the way yet again. The chip names are some of the best performers on the Nasdaq 100 today. AMD up 5% leading the way. NVIDIA, Lam Research also seeing decent gains, and both of those names are at 52-week highs. And my next guest has been bullish on semis for quite some time, highlighting Micron and AMD on their AI potential. Joining me now is Kim Forrest, Boca Capital's partner CIO. It's good to see you, Kim. Welcome. Thanks. Are we getting to a, a point in which the specialist goes, OK, these people are, are getting too crazy with these valuations yet for NVIDIA? Well, NVIDIA is tough because it's always crazy high, in my opinion. But they they tend to come through, right? At first, it was Bitcoin mining and everybody had to have uh, NVIDIA chips for Bitcoin mining. And now it's AI. So are they lucky or good? And I would say both. Lucky and good, right? It, it, it helps. And obviously, they've been on, on a tear as a result of it. Micron is not a name that I usually hear in the same breath. Why do you think this is a horse to bet on in the AI race? Sure. Well, they're a maker of commodity products. And the one I'm more interested in is NAND, N-A-N-D. And that is a way to store zeros and ones. And it's getting cheaper all the time as opposed to old spinning disks. So here's the thing. If we're really going to have AI take off and do its thing and make the world a better place, AI eats data, and that's what makes it smart. So you have to store it somewhere. So that's why I like storage companies and NAND in particular. So let's hope all of these are recession-proof, right? I mean, I do think there's two reasons why people are piling in. One, because the story, especially with NVIDIA, is amazing, but also because we want growth in what could be a challenged growth environment. Um, have we already priced in a lot of the, the hope and expectation for how well these companies will do over the next 6, 12, 18 months' time? Well, I'd say for the next six months, probably. I mean, we started off of a very, very low base, and I think that was caused largely by the sell-off in uh, November and December, and that, to me, was just smacks of tax loss sales. So you take a higher-priced asset that's now trading lower, and you can offset some gains by selling it and creating a loss. And I think January especially saw the rebound of tech, and that's people buying back those positions because the companies were broken. They were just using it for a tax matter. So, but looking forward, I'd rather look three to five years out, to tell you the truth, than 18 months. But I think that tech really is going to grow. AI is intriguing, and a lot of companies are going to put their toe in the water. And they are going to soak up semiconductors because you need a lot of compute power. You need to be able to collect data. 
And it all says everything like that runs through a semiconductor. Sure. Is there anything corners of the market, corners of tech, corners of the semis that don't excite you? Um, I guess maybe the older technologies, but even they may have a place like TI does a lot of analog. We'll, we'll say that. They, they are the, the interface between the real world and the digital world. And they may even have a place at gathering data, but we'll see. Then are you preserving capital to put to work if we get lower valuations in a, a macro downturn? Or do you just have to say, listen, that may or may not happen. I'll just take what I can get at these levels and you know, not be overly cautious. I'm not really somebody that tries to avoid a recession because we've had, I don't know, something like several hundred re recessions forecast. I'm kidding. We haven't had that many. But there has been over the past 10 years a lot of uh, recessions that have never come. And I would rather plan for the future, have my cash flow, have my cash needs met, but invest now and invest into the future. All right. I appreciate it. Kim, thanks for checking in with us today. Thanks. Kim Forrest with Boca. Coming up, what do the Air Force, Uber, and the NFL all have in common? They're using new private weather satellite technology, and SpaceX has a hand in it. Details next on The Exchange, Dow's down 244. Welcome back. Software turned satellite company Tomorrow.io is working to transform weather forecasting and it's attracting high profile clients like Microsoft, Raytheon and Porsche. Diana Olick is here with the details on its latest launch. And what's next, Diana? Well, Kelly, Tomorrow.io just confirmed it quietly launched the first commercially built weather radar satellite ever last month. And it's about to launch a second changing weather forecasting capabilities globally. We're going to create a significant revolution when it comes to weather forecasting and climate modeling and be able to help the National Hurricane Center hopefully have better hurricane forecasting and help insurance companies insure farmers in India and Brazil and help airlines fly from JFK to London in a much safer route and wasting less fuel. Three, two, one. Before the SpaceX launch of Tomorrow.io's satellite, the U.S. had just one atmospheric radar weather satellite operated by NASA. The lag time for its information could be three days or more. Alcabet said he intends to launch more than two dozen over the next two years, in combination with sensor microwave technology, creating a constellation that he claims will sample every point on Earth nearly every hour. Tomorrow started as a software company, uploading hundreds of weather data points to show clients specifically how future weather would impact operations, supply chains, and employees. Major clients now include Delta, United, JetBlue, Box Sports, Uber, Google Cloud, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, and the U.S. Air Force, among many others. That list will likely grow as the expanded radar data feeds new AI models. Because if you don't have radar data, either from the ground or from space, then by definition, the initial conditions of the model are just wrong. Uh, and you cannot train the model to get to higher level of accuracy. Tomorrow.io has more than $200 million in funding. Combining its existing software with the new radar satellite data could be a game changer for global resilience and even global economies in the face of climate change. Kelly? Might it be used in my iPhone, for instance, and become kind of ubiquitous? 
everywhere. It literally can be everywhere. It's just upping the ante, giving them so much more data than they have now available, even from land-based satellite, which can be limited due to the terrain. Are they the only ones? I mean, I, I, there have been so many satellite companies the last couple of years, especially with the, when money was a little bit freer to come by. Um, what makes them stand out from the pack? Because this is the only commercially built weather radar satellite up there right now. We have the one from NASA for the U.S., and there are a couple of other governments that have some globally. But some parts of the, of the world are not covered at all by weather, weather radar. And so this is really kind of putting the private sector up in space in the weather sector, which they haven't been yet. All right, Diana, thank you. We appreciate it very much covering tomorrow.io. Still ahead, it's been a rough month for SoFi. The shares are down about 25 percent, and that was despite stronger than expected Q1 results and inline guidance. The street focusing on its lack of loan sales, but one analyst says bears making the case are mathematically and intellectually off. He joins me on set to explain why after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. SoFi has become a major battleground stock lately. Since reporting earnings at the beginning of May, the online bank has been hit with major skepticism on Wall Street. Credit Suisse forecasting a growth deceleration in the back half. Morgan Stanley worried about personal loan risk. And just yesterday, Wedbush downgraded the bank, saying it might be at a tipping point when it comes to loan originations and sales. SoFi is down over 25 percent in this month. But could all the negative buzz be misplaced? My next guest says the bears are weighing down the stock and investors should start paying attention to the yield on the loan SoFi is already holding. Joining me is Dan Dolive. He's managing director at Mizuho Securities. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Why do you feel the need to come out and defend SoFi here? Or what, let's put it differently, what's the real opportunity that you see? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think people are just like, I think the bears are mathematically and intellectually completely wrong on this one. So let me explain to you the three things they're saying and why they're wrong. The first thing is they're saying they can't sell the loans and that's why they didn't sell any loans. It's not that they can't sell the loans. We did some work that shows you that they're earning a better yield by keeping the loans on the balance sheet, mm. about 6.4% versus selling them for 5%. So if I told you, hey, you can keep it here, right? Right. You know, why, you know, why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? Is that, and that is also a function of high interest rates. I mean, you go back a decade ago, or not quite, but the opposite might have been true. But today, the situation has changed. Exactly. And they're very high quality loans, right? They've got a book of about, you know, 9 to $10 billion personal loans. Well, 750. quality might be in the eye of the, uh, you of know, the, the consumer when it comes to a macro downturn that we appear to be heading into. I totally agree. But, you know, if you think about it, though, the, the average FICO on SoFi is like 740 or 750, right? Wow. I think it's even higher than my FICO. Don't, tell, same, don't yeah. tell anyone. But <laughs> it's like it's a very high quality. It's as good as it gets, right? Those are not this is not sort of the, the low quality subprime loans. Those are very high quality loans. So if they can if they can keep them for 6.4 rather than selling them for five, that's a huge trade, and that's why they didn't sell them. So that was the first point. There were two others. The two other points is that their accounting might change. That's actually very false because regulators do not allow you to change the accounting. Once you choose an accounting methodology, which for them is the fair value accounting, they cannot change it to the other accounting. So that's not going to happen. Those loans are not going to be valued at par. And then the third one is there was a disclosure that if they needed liquidity, they might have to raise um, capital. Mm -hmm. That same disclosure was around you know, when the S1 or the original 10K came out. So there's nothing new there. So I could refute all three of those bare points, and I think they're completely wrong, both mathematically and intellectually. Do you see that even being somewhat cautious about prospects for fintech, broadly speaking, right now? I think this is actually a super interesting question. I think they're at the sort of juncture of fintech and sort of small bank, and I think they kind of fall in that bucket, right? And they're saying, hey, we're a small bank, like, look at us, and it, and it just makes... It makes it puts like more fire uh, on them, but it, it's it's completely wrong. I mean, they're doing they're getting 
$10 billion of deposits, $2.7 billion of deposits every quarter. People in my industry use them as their primary bank. Really? Yes, yes. And every dinner that I go to, people say, hey, I'm ju I've just started using SoFi as my primary hmm. bank. What attracts them? I think the high interest rates, it's very simple. The high yields, right? They're offering like close to 5%. Very, very simple, very intuitive, and you don't need the branches. So I would be, and probably in the past was very bullish on fintech because of the elegance of the model. But some of you know, the offerings from Chase, all the big banks are now extremely good. And the yield that they're using to attract people to me is the red flag here, right? Like if all of fintech is competing on yield, that's not a great game to be playing, is it? But they're also giving you something else. They're giving you $2 million of FDIC insurance, which a lot of other banks don't give you. So the security and the safety is attracting a lot of people to them. It's interesting that that worked because it's a kind of move, in other words, helping on the back end move that money into different accounts that others could offer, or many many others have been offering in the traditional banking space for a long, long time. Exactly. So, I mean, you, have, you can put everything in one basket because you can feel secure that your money is safe, and that's what SoFi is doing. And I think that's a huge move for them, and I expect them to get even more deposits over time. Right, even though others presumably could do something very similar. Maybe they just had the first, you know, with the idea or the sophistication to pull it off. Why are you then kind of more cautious about fintech, generally speaking, right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, like, there's a lot of headwinds coming to fintech, right? For example, we downgraded uh, Visa, you know, last year. Hmm. And that was because of, part of it was because of the cash to, cash to card, which is driving about a third or 45% of the growth is coming from cash to card migration, we're hitting the ceiling of that. The more important one, July 1st, the Federal Reserve is coming up with a real-time payment scheme. And FedNow? FedNow, yeah. exactly. It's called FedNow. And, and everyone's dismissive of it. But if you go back to the uh, DOJ indictment of Visa when they try to buy Plaid, the, the, the Visa executives actually like said that if they can't buy Plaid, this is in the DOJ indictment, mm -hmm. they can't buy Plaid, it's a three to $500 million headwind to their debit business by 2024. By the way, that's like six the, months from Fed now. That Fed now will be because it's coming into the picture and disintermediating Correct. some of that by allowing these easier Correct. direct payments. Correct. It's, the, a, it's a clever thing to do to read their defense of why they want a merger to proceed. And then it reveals, yes. and, and that merger was ultimately blocked? It was blocked. So, yeah. you know, they didn't, they didn't buy Plaid. What should we, should we not believe them? I actually believe them. I believe that they were really worried about Visa Direct, and that's why they wanted to buy Plaid, and it didn't work out. In other words, are you saying that the Fed is casting a shadow across fintech because of Fed Now? It's just changing. I think that the last mile is a huge winner. So companies like Toast, even companies like Square, that have that consumer relationship are better off than the companies that are once removed and are just either doing the processing or the networks. So it's the last mile. It's the bank, the, the neobank like SoFi, those are the winners. So things are changing. And what's your price target on SoFi? Because the downgrade yesterday, I, I think Wedbush put a 250 price target on the stock. $9. $9, so almost a double from here? Correct. All right, Dan, you're on the record. Thank you for coming in. We really appreciate it today. Dan Dolliv with Mizuho. That does it for us uh, for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.